We've looked at a number of accounts of the birth of Jesus this morning. We've read Matthew's account of the angelic appearances to Joseph and Mary, uh, Dr. Luke's description of the birth in Bethlehem and the announcement to the shepherds. We've looked at the Apostle John's cosmic Christmas, the view from eternity, if you like. In the beginning was the word. But I'd like to look at one more account of that first Christmas from a fairly unique perspective. This is an account of Christmas 730 years before the event even took place. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah speaks about Jesus' coming into the world in Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. Isaiah was a young man with a wife and a couple of children who was called to be a prophet in Israel at the time when King Uzziah died, around 740 BC. And that was a truly dark time in the nation of Israel. That's actually the first point in Isaiah's prophecy here, a description of the darkness. The superpower of that time was the nation of Assyria, and its troops were massed on Israel's northern borders. The first towns to go would be the northern cities in the region of Galilee. It was a frighteningly dark time. And into that situation, Isaiah preaches a very simple message. Trust God. But in their distress, these men and women turned to anything and everything that they felt might give them a little relief. Anything, that is, except God himself. Listen to Isaiah's description of that time at the end of chapter 8. When people tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? 
Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam throughout the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. To the law and to the testimony was the ancient equivalent of read your Bible and pray. But that seems so tame and so boring and so unspectacular when you have an enemy amassed on the border. Far better to look for something a little more exciting and edgy and practical. But as one Bible commentator points out, this search for other means of relief can only make the darkness and our anguish more intense, for they lead away from him who is light. But you know, this darkness is not simply a description of Israel in 700 BC. It could just as easily characterize our own world this morning. This must be one of the darkness, darkest Christmases that we have ever experienced at the end of what has been an extremely dark year. And there are folk who've lost their jobs, some who've lost their incomes, some who have lost their health, some who have lost family members and friends. And in this darkness, we look for a light. And often we do what the people in ancient Israel did. We look to the earth. We look to human resources to fix the world. We look for a political leader to guide us through the disaster, an economist to solve the financial mess, a scientist to come up with a vaccine. And yet, have we really found one human being who has truly been able to help us? We discover, for example, that the fund that was supposed to create solidarity has been plundered by corrupt officials. The political leaders of the most powerful countries in the world have been disappointments, to say the very least. The concept, the concept of, well, we're all in this together, lies shattered on the ground as the most powerful countries in the world have scrambled to get vaccines for themselves. Uh, countries like the United States and Canada and Britain have ordered enough vaccines to vaccinate their entire population three times over, while the poorer countries are left to fend for themselves. And we ask the question, is there anybody out there who truly cares? Anyone who isn't just in it for themselves? Is there any light at the end of this tunnel? As Isaiah says, we look to the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. But of course, this darkness doesn't only apply to our own world or to our society or to nations. It applies to our own lives, too, if we're honest. John Ortberg is an American pastor and in one of his books, he writes these words. 
it's easier to quote him than to describe my own life. He says, I am disappointed with myself. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I wouldn't have minded getting a more muscular physique. I can't do basic home repairs. So far, I haven't shown much financial wizardry. I'm disappointed in my ordinariness. I want to be, in the words of Garrison Keylor, named Sun God, King of America, Idol of Millions, Bringer of Fire, the Great Haji, Thunder, the Boy Giant. But some of this disappointment in myself runs deeper. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic. I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them and make books come alive so that they love to read. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, have food fights and hold them and pray for them in a way that makes them feel cherished. I look in on them as they sleep at night and I remember how the day really went. I remember how my daughter spilled her cool drink at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she'd revealed some deep character flaw. I yelled at her even though I spill things all the time and no one yells at me. I yelled at her to tell the truth simply because I'm big and she's little and I can get away with it. And then I saw that look of hurt and confusion in her eyes and I knew that there was a tiny wound on her heart that I had put there and I wished that I could have taken those 60 seconds back. I remember how at night I didn't have slow sweet talks but merely rushed the children to bed so I could have more time to myself. I'm disappointed. And it's not just my life as a father. I'm disappointed also for my life as a husband, friend, neighbour and human being in general. I'm disappointed that I still love God so little and sin so much. Sometimes, although I'm aware of how far fall I short, it doesn't even bother me very much. And I'm disappointed at my lack of disappointment. Well, this is all very cheerful for Christmas Day, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. Because Isaiah tells us that into the gloom of his time, into the darkness of our world, into the dark little dungeon of our own ego, a light has come. That's Isaiah's second message. Not simply a description of the darkness, but a declaration that light has dawned. Into the darkness, God says, let there be light. And it's so interesting that even though Isaiah is describing a future event, so confident is he that this will take place, that he actually refers to this event in the past tense. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. 
Notice that Isaiah doesn't say that a light has arisen from among us or that we, with our collective wisdom, have developed a light. No, a light has dawned. The light is from beyond us. The light is from God. Indeed, it is God himself. In Isaiah chapter 60, we read these words. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. The light is a person. That's Isaiah's third point. A description of the darkness, a declaration of the dawning of the light, and thirdly, a portrayal of the most remarkable person. And have a look at what Isaiah tells us about him. Firstly, he is human. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He comes to us in the most ordinary way. He has the most human of all arrivals upon the earth. He is born. There is no religion in the world that teaches that God becomes human. He is, therefore, approachable. He wants to draw near. When God came to earth, he didn't come as a pillar of fire or a tornado or even as a king in a palace. He came as a baby. There was nothing more approachable than a baby. Even young children have got their own agenda and can run from you. But little babies can be picked up and hugged and kissed. They're open to it. They cling to us. God wants to come near. But being approachable also means being vulnerable. As Frederick Buchner puts it in one of his books, he comes to us in such a way that we can always turn him down as we could crack the baby's skull like an eggshell or nail him up when he gets too big for that. The Apostle John tells us the word became flesh, vulnerable, and made his dwelling among us approachable. And in Jesus, then, we have a wonderful counsellor. That's actually one title, not two. Uh, some Bibles put a comma between those two words, and George Frederick Handel, in his famous Messiah, put a few bars of violin notes between the two. Wonderful, papa, 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 counsellor, papa, papa, papa. But it's one title. Uh, it struck me at our carol service when Jenny read it to us in Afrikaans. Wunderbare Ratsman. He is a wonderful counsellor. Some of you may have visited a counsellor or a psychologist or a therapist, and you may even have a pretty wonderful counsellor. But here is the counsellor par excellence. Those of you who have been for counselling will know that the very best counsellors are those who have been through the very situation that you are struggling through. So if you're going through a divorce, it's most helpful to have a counsellor who has been through a divorce. 
If you've been abused, it's helpful to visit a counsellor who's gone through that experience. And because Jesus is human, because he has been through our experience, he has an infinite capacity and power to comfort us. Have you been betrayed? So was he. Have you been lonely? So was he. Have you been rejected and misunderstood and sidelined? So was he. Are you destitute? So was he. Have you been abused? So was he. Have you lost someone close to you? So did he. Are you facing death? So has he. And if you say, you don't understand, I've prayed to God for things and God ignored me, Jesus understands that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, may this cup be taken from me. And yet his prayer went unanswered. Maybe you would say, I think that God has abandoned me. Jesus has been there too. As on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has been all the places you have been. He's been in the darkness you are in now and more. And therefore you can trust him. You can rely on him because he knows and has the power to comfort and strengthen and bring you through. We have a God who truly understands from the inside of our experience. So he's fully human and yet he's also fully God. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are all God titles. You see, if Jesus were merely a human, he would be no more able to help us out of the mess we are in than any other human leader or philosopher or scientist. But because he is almighty God, he is able to rescue us and help us. And that's what Isaiah says he does in that rather obscure reference in verses 4 and 5. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What Isaiah is doing here is he's giving precedent for God acting on our behalf with no input from us. He's giving the example of Gideon, who defeated the vast army of Midian with just 300 men. And when you read the account in Judges chapter 6, you discover that each of those men held a burning torch covered by a clay pot in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand. Where then were the swords? Well, it was actually God who defeated this vast army while Gideon and his men simply watched. And Isaiah says that God will do the same again. There's a great battle described in Isaiah chapter 9, but we don't need to do a thing. Boots, soldiers' uniforms, you can burn them up. You won't need them. And if even the shoes aren't necessary, how much less a sword or a shield? 
Verse 7, it is the zeal of the Lord Almighty that will shatter the yoke that burdens them. And when you read this, you can see that Isaiah is not simply speaking about freedom from earthly political oppression, as terrible as that is. No, the freedom that is achieved is from a far greater oppression, the misery and bondage of human sin. Because the Bible says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin, and so we need to be set free. That's why Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace. All around us, we can see people at war, at war with others, at war with families, at war with their neighbours, at war with themselves. But all of those are simply symptoms of a much greater war. Men and women are at war with God. And again, what we can't do for ourselves, God does for us by placing our sin on his only son. As we sing in that carol, God and sinners reconciled, light and life to all he brings, but at deep personal cost to himself. He brings us light because he experienced darkness. For three hours while he was on that cross, darkness came over the whole world and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of our darkness, all of my darkness was placed upon him and he bore the weight of my sin and guilt and shame and took the punishment that I deserved, God forsakenness in order to bring me into God's light. A most remarkable person who is both fully human and fully God, and so in his own body brings humans and God together again. There's so much more that we could look at in these verses, but let me try and draw out a couple of practical implications and applications of this passage for our own lives today. Firstly, let me ask the question, have you received the gift of light for yourself? Perhaps you're sat watching this with family out of politeness. You're sympathetic to the Christian faith, not antagonistic, but not really committed either. Let me challenge you. What do you make of this prophecy written 700 years before the coming of Christ and yet pointing so clearly to him? What do you make of the other hundreds of prophecies written hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came to earth? And what do you make of the rest of his most remarkable life? You've seen something of who Jesus is today. Won't you accept this free gift? The light is there. It's available to all of us today. All we have to do is open up the shutters of our hearts and let the light stream in. But secondly, are you continuing to receive this light? Not just a once-off decision, but a continually, continual opening of your life to the light of Christ. You see, sometimes we do what the people of Isaiah's time did. We say that God is important. 
but we look for help and light somewhere else. Will we come to him and keep on coming to him? Because as the true light, he offers us at least four things today. Number one, Jesus as the true light will illuminate our lives. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice the binary nature of what Jesus says here. As we go through this world, it is Jesus or it is darkness. There is no other light. C.S. Lewis, who was the author of the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, in his early years, he had been what his friends described as a foul-mouthed and riotously amusing atheist. Later on in life, much to his own great surprise, he became a Christian. And he once said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Jesus will be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path by which we will clearly see everything else. Day by day, moment by moment, will we keep on coming him to illuminate our lives. Number two. Jesus, as the true light, will dispel our darkness. Light is captivating, isn't it? If you have candles on your Christmas table on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day itself, and this year, even if you don't choose Christmas candles for yourself, ESCOM may choose them for you. But if you've, if you've ever sat and looked at a candle, you will find that it is fascinating and beautiful. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. Perhaps for some of you, you are struggling with the darkness of addiction, the loneliness and the fear and the shame. Here's one of the keys to breaking that. Light displaces darkness. You can't suck darkness out of a room. You can't banish darkness by your own effort. But when you switch on a light, or you light a candle, or when the sun comes up, or you open up the shutters, light displaces the darkness. And when we keep on daily looking at the true beauty of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us, his light displaces the darkness of our addictions to money, sex and power, our addiction to ourselves. God's that cannot save. Jesus will banish the darkness. Number three. Jesus, as the true light, brings comfort. As a child, and in fact even as an adult, it's comforting in the darkness to have even a small light. And for many of us right now is a time of darkness. 
For some of us, 2021 will be a very dark year. All of us are going to face dark times, and each one of us will one day face a great darkness. Because all of us, as Isaiah says, live in the land of the shadow of death. There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings where the elven princess Galadriel gives Frodo a phial which contains the light of Eriandil's star. And she says to Frodo, It will shine still brighter when night is about you. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. And in the days that lie ahead, and on our final day on this earth, Jesus will be a light to us when all other lights go out. Will we keep on coming to him as our wonderful counsellor to receive his comfort, his grace to help us in our time of need? And number four, Jesus as the true light brings us hope. This text from the book of Isaiah reminds us of the sovereignty of God. Because as one writer puts it, when you read the story of your salvation in detail, 730 years before it happened, you not only have revelation, but validation. We can be strengthened in our confidence that this is no myth, but the historical work of God who told his story long before it happened. And because God's story happened in exactly the way God's word promised, we can be supremely confident that God's story will again happen in exactly the way that God has promised. The story isn't finished yet. There is another day of light coming. On the very last page of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we read about this. Uh, speaking of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, where God's people will be at home finally with him. John says this. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. One day this world will be filled with the light of Jesus and nothing else. That is where history is heading. 2020 may be the beginning of the end of the world, but we can be supremely confident. God is in control. He's dependable. He's completely trustworthy. He's sovereign. No matter what happens in our lives, no matter what happens in our world, there is one unshakable throne. And one day we will see Jesus face to face and be with him forever. When I was a child, one of our best outings around Christmas time uh, was to go to Jaber Park in Johannesburg and walk around the park and look at the Christmas lights. I doubt they still do that, as Jaber Park is very different to the park that it was when I was a child. There's a good chance, though, that some of you still do go out and look at the Christmas lights perhaps down the centre of Cape Town, 
or perhaps looking at a few houses who have set up Christmas lights in their front gardens. But you know, it's possible to enjoy all of the lights of Christmas and miss this one great light. Will we accept the free gift of the light Jesus gives us? And will we keep on accepting his light? The light that illuminates our lives, dispels our darkness, and brings us comfort and hope. And if we wanted more of the light of Christ this week, it really would mean doing what Isaiah tells us at the end of chapter 8. Reading our Bibles and praying every day and trusting him above anything and anyone else. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never and will never overcome it. May we pray together. Light in our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. Bring us safely in time to thy eternal light, for the love of thy only Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. O Lord, our hearts are weary and troubled. No light in the darkness we see, but there's light 